You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Good to have you here. If you were to look for e-commerce categories, you would find a number of results for that query. What business models e-commerce falls under, what product categories have been doing well lately, what products have been doing well in specific, and what are important trends in relation to the industry. Of course, you don't need to search for it because I've gone and done that for you today. The first category I want to cover are business models in relation to e-commerce. This is from Numenix.com. In an effort not to overlap with the previous episode about business models, I checked that list to see if the ones listed here come up. And there's a few that don't. So let's get into these here. The first two listed are business to business and business to consumer, which we've talked about before. The remaining ones are new to the information we spread out over the course of this journey. Number one, consumer to consumer. This is where both ends of the business are conducted by the customer. And there's a platform acting as an intermediary. You have businesses like PayPal, which give other consumers and businesses the ability to pay one another, with PayPal getting us cut. You have subscription businesses like Patreon or Subscribestar, which give creators a way to receive funding directly from fans in exchange for exclusive benefits. Or not. In Patreon's case, you can actually just give them money and not expect anything. Also referenced in the article are Facebook Market and Craigslist. Number two, consumer to business. This one surprised me. I've never seen it before. And frankly, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I'll describe it as is and you can make up your own mind. C2B is where a customer makes products or services available for companies to purchase, as the article says. The examples they cite include a graphic designer customizing a company logo or a photographer taking photos for an e-commerce website. My point of contention with this is that I don't know if I consider the producers of content as consumers when they're the ones creating content. So I looked into it a bit more and seopressor.com goes into it more at length. And they cite Upwork as an example in that, in this model breakdown, the customer is someone offering something, typically freelancers. The intermediary is the platform, and the business is the one picking up the service. Now, being from the position that I am, I don't agree with the definition of this model. I think it's backwards. The freelancer is the asset or resource that the business values. So I'm puzzled that of all the parties involved, it's the one paying the money that's not considered the customer. At least within a work-for-hire platform, the businesses are the ones purchasing services, with the platform getting a cut. For that reason, I think it should be BAC, business as customer. We'll see if this changes as the gig economy, remote work, and freelancing continue to evolve. By the way, if you disagree with this and can make a case as to why you should be consumer to business, I'm all ears. Contact podcast at debutify.com. The third and fourth distinct ones are business to administration and consumer to administration. If you're on the business side, you're basically treating the government like a customer. Chances are, due to the official nature of working with governments, businesses tend to be built solely around government contracts. It's a little more accurate to say administration to business. Consumer to administration, though, checks out. Consumers pay taxes to the government as an example of a relationship, but Exonent.com also points to academic fees, distance learning, e-health, or e-voting. I suspect government work isn't your wheelhouse if you're listening to us on Ecomonics. 
a Debutify podcast. But if you are, we'd like to hear about your experience. So I'm glad I got to go over that. As I said, it wasn't the plan originally. What was the plan was to go through the most prominent e-commerce categories. And a good place to make sure we're seeing the most relevant information is a 2020 article from Oberlo. The top five online shopping categories are now fashion, toys slash hobby slash DIY, electronics slash media, food and personal care, and then furniture and appliances, which are also the top five in the U.S., but that's largely because the U.S. is the biggest influencer in terms of total sales. Now, let's look back to the report we did earlier. In our episode where we covered the big five, the earlier data set indicated the top five sales categories were apparel and accessories, consumer and computer electronics, auto and parts, books, music, video, and then furniture and home furnishings. It wasn't a complete reversal or anything, but some changes did occur. So what happened? Well, you know as well as I do what happened. People were locked into their homes, so auto and parts got knocked off the list. People aren't using their vehicles as much and are working a lot more remotely. I wouldn't want to point out there is an uptick in delivery drivers, but the ratio of people driving to people served would overall account for a net drop in drivers. Toys, hobby, and DIY appearing on the list now makes sense, as more people are finding more free time, as well as need to take more independence. Electronics and media checkout, though the category was condensed. Before, you had a difference between electronics, the devices, and media, the content on the devices. Food and personal care are a burgeoning aspect to this, as more people are testing the waters of getting their own groceries online, including myself just this week. In terms of raw numbers, fashion is 596 billion, DIY is 504 billion, electronics and media is 481 billion, food and personal care 413 billion, furniture and appliances 312 billion. The biggest gap between them is between food and personal care and then furniture and appliances of 99 billion. The total growth is 13% year over year but is less than 2018 to 2019's 21.9%. So while COVID-19 has impacted what people are buying, it's also had a significant impact on people's ability to buy it all. To supplement these changes and trends, I've also found a second article to support this from eShipper.com. In addition to what categories we've established so far, they also added face masks as a whole category on its own, which are popular enough to warrant it, I suppose. The next contribution to the list is gym equipment, which is one of the highest ordered products on eBay. The other unique contribution to the list is home and garden, which I suppose you can make the case ties into toys, hobbies, and DIY. And keep in mind, this is largely due to the combination of being home during the summer as the Western Hemisphere transitions to fall. You may notice a slight irritability in the tenor of my voice, but other than that, it's going to be difficult to make huge gains until next summer. Now. Here's my next list. We're gonna get more specific. We're gonna get into what products in particular trended upwards and which ones trended downwards as of the end of quarter three, according to visualcapitalist.com. So the way this will work is I'm gonna say the product and the percentage of how much has increased between March 2019 and March 2020. Deep breath. Pain relievers like Advil, 99. Dog food, 159. Vitamins, 166. Fitness goods. 170. Toilet paper, 190. Dishwashing supplies, 275. 
Milk and Cream, 279. Weights, 307. Fruit Cups, 326. Packaged Foods, 377. Rice and Dried Grains, 386. Soups, 397. Cough Medicine, 535. Bread Machines, 652. Disposable Gloves, 670. This is March, so we can understand why a lot of these items became hot sellers in that time. Emergency preparedness kits, evidently, not so much. Honestly, what's it going to take, people? Okay, who am I kidding? I, I didn't get one either, but seriously, I would really recommend getting a package. A two-week bin just to hold things together until you figure it out which of your parents you're going to go to, yours or your partner's. Anyways, on to the downtick. There are a number of items here, and they all check out based on the circumstances. But the disparity down is not as pronounced as the upticks. Luggage, 77. Briefcases, 77. Cameras, 64. Men's swimwear, 64. Bridal wear, 63. Men's formal wear, 62. Women's swimwear, 59. Rash guards, 59. Boys' athletic shoes, 59. Gym bags, 57. Party and event supplies, 55. Store fixtures and displays, 50. Drones, 50. Golf clubs, 33. And coolers, 30. So that we're all understanding this correctly, this means the higher the number, the steeper the decline and increase respectively. Again, what do we know from this? We know traveling was ground to a halt. We know big events were canceled or drastically reduced in scope. Golf courses, kind of surprising. Pretty distant pastime if you ask me. So based on what we've understood so far, what's your takeaway? Mine is, now that we're moving into a more pronounced, long-term situation regarding this pandemic, people are starting to adjust to this lifestyle because... Well, we don't know if it's going to end. Warnings of a second wave have been coming through the Nexus for some time now, and the West has a winter ahead of it. Depending on when you listen to it, the upcoming trends will change, but the purpose of this exercise is to analyze the data and draw conclusions, making it easier to do that in the future. I'll tell you my takeaway. Even if we all get the all clear tomorrow, there have been some significant changes to people's lifestyle. Remote work is proven, so the next major DIY innovation could be yours. Fashion will always reign supreme because the profit margins are too good, but to keep looking forward with fashion is to continue having your finger on the pulse. Understanding the way people live will help you understand what they need to wear to express themselves. And it's not just to others, it's to themselves as well. People are going to be at home more often, which means they'll be looking at themselves in the mirror at home more often. Are you going to sell them clothing intended for when they're at parties that they can't go to? Or are you going to sell them clothing that they can stand to see themselves in day after day? We can see with toys, hobbies, and DIY that more people are finding time to do something they enjoy. The worst case scenario might be someone who just can't quite get themselves able to do what they need to do. Turning to pastimes to give themselves something to occupy their mind. On the more preferable scenario, you have people who no longer need to commute, realizing they saved about 10 hours a week on travel, give or take. Oh, and travel's not free. Selling electronics and media is hard for me to advise. It's something we've talked about before regarding liability. So if it were me, I'd focus on sourcing one good quality product and forging a site around it. Food and personal care are fourth on the list, and a lot of that, I suspect, has to do with the ability for dropshippers and e-com sellers to be willing, or able, to sell consumable product that we would eat or rub on our faces. Same goes for furniture and appliances. Okay, well, you don't rub your appliances or eat your furniture, but there are other roadblocks to wanting to sell those uh, en masse. One of my mantras on the show is to buy cheap to test and then invest. So when I see e-commerce centered appliance markets, I usually see small countertop ones such as single room air conditioning or dehumidifier. Now would be a good time to tell you about first touch personalization. 
I found a great article by searchenginejournal.com, which also provides some 2020 insights that highlight what we've been building on here, which is the dramatic and pronounced shift towards online life. SearchEngineJournal.com points to a few e-commerce-specific facts here, which includes the growth rate within e-commerce, a 77% increase in online sales. They go on to say that of the people purchasing, 74% of shoppers will be people who don't normally buy online. Of the 7.4 million people who are doing an online checkout for the first time, 75% are boomers or older. And also, of these people, 80% of them say that if their online shopping experience is catered to their specific needs, they'll be back. This new wave of e-com customers for now are spending on necessities, the article says, which is backed up by the facts listed above. For us, this is good news. Well, as good as it gets under the circumstances. These shoppers are not tech-savvy, or are less tech-savvy than average, and so what's essential to servicing them is an experience that's fast, simple, and most importantly, relevant to what they need. This is where first-touch personalization comes in. The example they cite is as follows. One goes to a physical store looking for hair care. They know they're in the right store most of the time, and then they rely on the assistance of the staff to narrow down the options to what they need in specific. Whereas when customers arrive at an e-commerce store equivalent, where things might not go so well for the business is when there is only one product on the landing page. Customers would be immediately dismayed by the lack of options. Once first-touch personalization was implemented, instead of one product there, there were several, with each one tagged to be relevant to the customer's needs. The article goes on to make the case that without adhering to a digital transformation we're facing, your business is going to fall behind. The last category I can share with you today are what trends have been and will continue to shape the remainder of 2020 and beyond. This is a read from eConsultancy.com. Number one, data and AI. The first important point expressed in the article is that a lot of what we used as resources for data has changed. Customers, suppliers, and competitors have all needed to adapt to a drastic change in the world as we know it. So even as we evolve the show, we have to recalibrate the data we've accumulated. Although we'll eventually get the all clear, people have grown accustomed to the shift in lifestyle and may like to stay this way out of preference or out of concern that we might get hit by another pandemic in our lifetime. The article points out that big companies like Amazon and Alibaba are based on the principles of data-driven merchandising and product recommendations aka matching customers with the products they're most likely to buy. The AI side of it is a little less clear. Since data is based on collecting information that's there, AI is based on optimizing processes for the future. It's got to make decisions, also referred to as machine learning. Here's what it's done for you and what you may not have realized. AI is what decides what display ads appear as you browse the web. This is true for Google's ad engine, which is their primary source of revenue. On social media, meaning Twitter, Facebook, and the like, they use machine learning to determine what you as a reader will see. Amazon, as well, has gotten in on it. In 2019, their ads business has generated $4.8 billion in revenue. They go on to talk about what machine learning does for task management. They can instantaneously select among 10,000 SKUs, which one the customer might like. They'll rank your category pages to maximize your likely gross margin return, sort out customer requests so that your CS agents can work through them more easily, and guess what inclinations customers have in terms of their spending habits. Number two are digital skills, which make up almost all of my portfolio. E-Consultancy points out that among the 10 richest people in the world, four got that way due to digital technology. 
Bezos, Gates, Ellison, and Zuckerberg. And then the remainder on that list depend on it to keep their business flourishing. Some facts to back this up include Inditex, a parent company of Zara. They announced they're closing, well, they had announced they were closing 16% of stores and are focusing that effort on cash and e-commerce. A logistics company, DPD, announced they're recruiting 6,000 plus people to provide digital support. And the UK government made an announcement that they need to upgrade their digital strategy, which e-consultancy speculates means trying to train people more digitally. Their third one is personalization, but we touched on that one already. Number four is competing with Amazon. It's something anyone not Amazon has to think about. But one interesting angle to keep in mind is that let's say you want to sell through Amazon. As their $5 billion ad program continues to gain traction, sellers aren't just competing externally, but internally as well. They're forced to spend ad money within Amazon to have their product displayed. On the one hand, compared to spending ad money on Facebook where users might not be in a buying mood, the ad money spent on Amazon is to present your product to customers already looking to spend, or at the very least browsing. The other side, you're neck and neck with other products, including, in many cases, Amazon's own in-house products. How to deal with this is broken down into seven subsections. Section A, which is a brand. While Amazon pushes certain products the hardest, customers, including myself, have some built-in loyalty to companies that we know and trust. While it can take years to create a brand that will have household staying power, you can advertise the best parts in a few hours to get the ball rolling. Section B is mission. Amazon is a market. But if you remember back to my episode on e-commerce stores, brands like Partake and Last Object contribute to the net good, and customers are more inclined to buy knowing their money goes towards a noble cause. Section C is content. Again, Amazon is bare bones in terms of a creative voice. So as people begin to spend more of their time on the net, filling it with valuable information ties into the mission statement as well. D is customer experience. The writer of the piece had asked someone high-ranking at Amazon why people buy from them. The answers were logistics, customer support, and price or selection. Price and selection. I don't know why it would be an or. That was my mistake. They set the standard for all three. And while selection is subjective to your operation, logistics and customer support are non-negotiable. Section E is habit. The case is, many of us are defaulting to Amazon for our shopping habits. Personally, the reason why I do is because of liability. I can say with utter certainty that buying from various e-commerce sites has been a mixed bag, including ones where the product never arrived or I was falsely informed. If you've listened to every episode up to this point, you will know what I'm talking about. But assuming I trust a brand, why would I be compelled to check in on other sites habitually? The example they cite is Boohoo and ASOS, that's A-S-O-S. They would have new products available regularly, which encourages customers to come to check them out. My browsing habits are based on dopamine. I hate to admit it, I'm trying to resist it, but I could easily lose hours a day going through social media as there's always something new to check out. I've never gone to Amazon because something is new. I expect new things to arrive there every day. I've always gone because there's something I've got to buy. Section F is product exclusivity. It's good to sell some things on Amazon, but you can also funnel shoppers to your site by promoting site-exclusive items. And if you intend to have one-to-one parity, you can have a product launch on your site and then release it later on Amazon. Section G, convenience and locality. Convenience we've considered already, but Amazon is a store. And you don't see them putting their store in other physical stores, which are still around, I might add. 
but you can get your product into those stores and help support that business and community by doing so. Number five, responding to changing customer behavior. These changes are short-term and long-term, which we've been thinking about already, but here are the subsections we can get into detail on. There's category shift, which we've talked about above, and openness to new brands, which is a result of people going online and seeing products and brands they'd normally not see going to a store. Next is e-commerce by default, which is simply ordering something online now versus going to that same company's physical location that's 20 minutes away. And last on this subsection is price and return sensitivity. Where brick and mortar has an advantage is the ease of returns. Going to the store to bring something back opens the customer up to trying other products in case an exchange is a better option. Customers are reluctant to go to the post office, says the article, and I'm in agreement. In addition to the long wait time I experienced last time I had to do a return by post, not only did I, well, I just, I just said it, I had to wait, I also had to pay shipping, which cost me $15. If I buy something at a store and have to return it, I can mitigate my loss of travel by doing other stuff while I'm in the area, so to speak. And at least I don't need to pay to return. As for price sensitivity, there is uncertainty on both sides. Companies don't know if their product, which for some time was well in demand, such as the list I referred to earlier, will all of a sudden go in or out of demand. And consumers won't always know if a product is really worth buying, depending on the circumstances. So the more you can predict and prepare for how your product will be effective in the market, the better. The next factor is protecting from recession. The advantages of e-commerce in surviving an incoming recession is that for one, without a physical location, e-brands have to take the initiative and stay engaged with customers. The second is that if you notice a sudden change in buyer behavior, you can easily respond to it since it'll all be done on your computer, or tablet even. Third is that you can check the efficacy of ad campaigns. A TV campaign could be a whole quarter before you see results. But you can sense how things are going online over 24 hours. Fourth is that stock is being held in one of a few central locations and not spread out over dozens or hundreds of stores. I can tell you from experience, at one of my watch jobs, when one of the other stores was calling, we were reluctant to pick up the phone because it meant having to transfer a product of ours to them. The final factor is in summation, to understand the implications of your overall customer experience strategy, which encapsulates all of what we talked about today. That includes the increased demand in the online space, increased expectations for quality customer service, a sense that brands are out to make a difference and have a mission, and that digital skills are in short supply. Whew. All right, well, that is it for today. So refine your strategy and get yourself ready for 2021. We all thought we knew how 2020 would look going in. And if there's another change like it, this time we should be ready for it. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.